Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 2. Part 1, Chapters 1 to 2, Home Sweet Gloam. Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt, I've read all the books, Bush. <laughs> Did you make this one up on the spot as well? I actually was thinking about this yesterday as I was eating my Thanksgiving turkey. I appreciate you not filling it in on the notes because it surprises me. <laughs> I'm excited though. This is, this is truly, we had the welcome episode, but this is the first one we dig into the book. It's been a long time coming. We've been, we've been hyping this up. And so listeners, this is it. We are diving in and you can expect a very routine week by week as we go through this book. We're back. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, if for nothing else that I've been reading the first two chapters every couple of days for the last week or two. So I'm really, really looking forward to the chapters three and four. <laughs> You've been rereading over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I actually just reread it this morning and this is probably like my fourth read. It does get better every time. It's really hard the first time because you just don't understand what's going on with the characters. It's such a foreign world. And now that you understand the whole book and you go back, it's like, oh, now I see it all. Well, we went to Mass for Thanksgiving in the morning and I afterwards, Marie and I usually go for a coffee and I read her chapter one and, uh, and she, she said it really grabbed her and described it as being very different from anything else of Lewis's that she had read. Oh, first of all, what a beautiful way to spend the morning. A coffee with reading some C.S. Lewis. That's what you call true love. Well, that's also how we spent the evening after we had uh, finished with her family. Uh, we uh, uh, went back to her place and I read her chapter two. Well, we should, before we jump in here too, we should point out, so we're recording this on Friday, November 29th. David, what Mm -hmm. is today? This is C.S. Lewis's birthday. Happy birthday, Jack. Happy birthday, Jack. Indeed. We'll we'll, we'll raise a toast to him. Well, what are you drinking? I am drinking, because we are also recording this the morning of... And so for me, I guess I could drink some scotch. It's almost noon, but for you, it's so early in the morning. So I am drinking some ginger tea. Well, I'm drinking some Lagavulin. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, now, you know what? I'm, Forget this. I'm going to go pour myself some Macallan. <laughs> and I'm drinking it out of my lovely laser etched logoed Glencairn whiskey glasses, which Matt sent me in the mail. Yes. I And also what you don't realize is I did it from my own personal account because I'm like, I can't have David look and see that I sent these to him. I wanted them to be a surprise. So I first of all spent a while figuring out what your address was, which then I realized I looked at a previous order you did of the, um, I think the billing address of the pint glasses that you got for uh-huh. uh, Douglas Gresham. And so I found the address and I'm like, I really don't know if this could be an old billing address. Cause I've done that before where I've updated it, but we're just going to roll with it and hope these make it to David. <laughs> so then when I heard nothing for like a week and a half, I'm like, uh Oh, maybe some stranger just got some pints with Jack glasses, <laughs> but I have two as well. And they turned out fantastic. They do look beautiful and listeners, these will be available eventually, but not just yet. Well, now I'm pouring myself as we speak some uh, Macallan 12. So we're going to change Matt's drink of the week to Macallan 12. (laughs) Well, actually, I am also double fisting it. I have a a lovely cup of black English breakfast tea. Well, that's it is kind of early. Yeah, well, let's raise our newly laser etched Pints with Jack glasses. 
filled with Lagavulin and McAllen on C.S. Lewis's birthday to C.S. Lewis. To Jack. To Jack. Cheers. Mm. And now we need to uh, do another toast because we also need to do the quote of the week. Yes. So the quote of the week is also the very first line of chapter one, the book. And we chose this because it really sets the stage for what this book is about. Orwall says, I am old now and have not much fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband nor child nor hardly a friend through whom they can hurt me. And on that cheery note, cheers again. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> ah, two sips of McCallan in one minute. That's how you start a Friday, Black Friday. <laughs> All right. Well, before we start this discussion on the book, Let's remind listeners right now of all of the new things that we've done with the YouTube channel, with the blog, with this podcast, the upgraded website. So we want you guys to go there, subscribe to the website. All that means you'll get the email every single Tuesday with these different mediums that we're going to be coming at you from. Also, the t-shirts are officially in the store. And so definitely go to the website. David put a tab up there called shop. And they look really cool. There's some great ones there. I like some of the colors too. They're very unique colors. And just in time for Christmas. And just in time for Christmas, yes. They'll have to be quick though, because <laughs> this won't be released until what, the second week of December. So hopefully they've been following us on social media, so they'll know about it already. Yes. Anything else before we dive in, David, that we need to cover? No. Uh, the only thing I want to check with you, uh, should I read the summary of chapter one and then we'll discuss it and then I'll do the summary of chapter two and then we'll discuss that? Or put them all together? I'd actually, I'd, I'd say put them together, personally. Okay. Well, let's get down to it. Oriole, now old, tells the story of her grievance against the gods, and particularly against the son of Ungit, who lives on the Grey Mountain. Oriole picks up the story shortly after her mother's death. She describes life in the palace with her younger sister, Redaval, her nurse, Bata, and her father, King Trom of Glome. She recounts the arrival of the fox, a Greek slave whom her father instructs to teach his daughters in the learning of his people. The fox shows himself to be wise and an inquisitive man, and he quickly wins the approval of Oriel. Determined to produce a male heir, King Trom becomes engaged to the third daughter of the King of Kafad. Thickly veiled, the daughters and twelve other noble daughters greet their stepmother with a Greek song. They help the bride undress and leave her, shivering and scared, in the bridal chamber. Oriol's stepmother becomes pregnant, and King Trom is convinced it's a boy, which thankfully tempers his displeasure at his discovery of his father-in-law's declining status. On the night of the birth, with all superstitious rituals satisfied, the household waits. Oriol is woken up to the sound of wailing. The king calls for wine, and when the servant slips, he murders him. He then proceeds to threaten all those present, including Ungit's priest and the god herself. After threatening the fox with the mines, Oriol begs him to flee, offering to go with him. But the king soon realizes the fox's value, and he returns him to his regular work. Oriol quickly develops great affection for her new baby sister, who is named Istra, or Psyche, and takes charge of her care. Much to Oriol's horror, the fox declares Psyche to be prettier than Andromeda, prettier than Helen, prettier than Aphrodite herself. Wow. So I think what we have learned from this really quickly 
is there is a lot going on and there are a lot of characters and names that we need to unpack in this episode. Yeah, it all kicks off with Orwell speaking in the first person. She's going to be the one narrating the story. And she's writing this long after the events of when this story took place. Yeah, what do you say we start with the we start with pretty much the first paragraph. I mean, that tells us mm. a lot right from the beginning. We unpack that and we're going to start learning about her right away. And so then she says, Orwell, I am now old and I have not much to fear from the anger of the gods. I have no husband nor child nor hardly a friend through whom they could hurt me. My body, this lean carrion, carrion, that still has to be washed and fed and have clothes hung about it daily with so many changes, they may kill as soon as they please. The succession is provided for. My crown passes to my nephew. Being for all these reasons free from fear, I will write in this book what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the God who lives on the gray mountain. That is, I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning, as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. There's a lot there right away. Like you said, we learned that this is first person from Orwell. She's writing this looking back on her life. And clearly there's some tension between her and the gods that we learn about. We see that she's the queen and she talks about her succession is provided for. And we learn that there's this god of the gray mountain who clearly plays a very important role in here. It rather reminds me of the book of Job from the Old Testament, where Job is complaining that he's a righteous man and basically doesn't deserve for all the calamity that has befallen him. And he wants an audience with God. And through the entire book, God is silent until right at the very end. But we also see that Oriole is very bitter and she's got nothing left to lose. That, that first line where she says, I haven't got much to fear from the anger of gods, no husband, nor child, nor hardly a friend. And in the last episode, when I was talking to Andrew, we spoke about the pairing of this book with The Four Loves. And in that opening sentence, you actually have each of those kinds of love present, or in this case, actually absent, because she says she doesn't have a husband. So that's no Eros, a child. That's no Storge, no friend. That's Philia and no love of the gods, no Agape. So Oroal is a woman who is without love. Yeah, she is broken down. She's, she's beaten. She's bitter. And it's going to be interesting to see as we learn of her journey, what that does to her and how that affects her journey. And I love that connection with the four loves of the, the four, have her, her not having the four loves, essentially. I never thought of that. That was a good connection. Did you determine that on yourself, David, or did Andrew point that out to you? Andrew gave me a hint at what to look for. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Well, there's also, we learn here really quickly in the beginning, there, she says, I will begin my writing with the day my mother died and they cut off my hair as the custom is. There's a lot in that as well. Yeah, there were, there were a few things about this scene. One thing that really struck me is you don't get the impression that she was particularly sad that her mother had died. No. There's no mention of tears. And actually, she's playing with her sister that afternoon. She says that's what she really remembers about that day. You think it's interesting? I was thinking of this as I was reading this morning, rereading this, that you think it's coincidental that it's her mother that dies and really sets her on this journey in a profound way in Lewis's journey 
somewhat began with the death of his mother that rocked his world? Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, no, absolutely. But you do see a very different response, whereas Lewis was, was gutted by the death of his mother, with whom he was very close. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Yes, and where he ultimately turned it into a positive, it really fueled his journey back to Christianity. In this sense, she seems to be more in a downward spiral from it, as we will learn throughout the book. Yes, although, to be fair, in Lewis's own own spiritual journey, there was, there was a descent before there was an ascent. Yes, that's true. The other thing that I was going to say was, because I'm, I'm looking at these first two chapters trying to pick up themes, and this is all I've read. And there was a line when it was talking about her hair being cut. And they said that the slave women were standing around from time to time, wailing at the queen's death and beating their breasts. But in between, they were eating nuts and joking. (laughs) I get the distinct impression that a theme we're going to find throughout is the idea of being two-faced, or at least things not being the way they really are. Because uh, even just in these first two chapters, I, I saw... Things not being the way they first appeared, hap- I saw that happening regularly. I think you're onto something. <laughs> I'm smiling right now because I can't, I can't give too much away having read the whole book. But you see, you will continually see that theme throughout this book. And I think you're exactly right. You see people describing certain circumstances, and then you find out there's something very different behind it. Um, and I would imagine you get the sense when you're reading them describing Ungit, as we'll talk about a little bit later, like maybe that's not the full story to who Ungit is, or maybe it's not the full story to to the god of the Grey Mountain. Like maybe there's more to this than we realize. I mean, even in the opening description of Ungit, we're told that she's in darkness. And I don't think it's coincidental that we're told that she doesn't even have a face. Ah, yeah, that's a very good point. She is a black stone without head or hands or face. Yeah, and, and for listeners, just so they know, we've it somewhat covered it in the summary, but Ungit is more or less a primary god. And so we'll hear constantly the house of Ungit. I like how you said that, David, sounds more godlike. Ungit. <laughs> <laughs> Ungit. And we find out later that this is effectively the same god as Venus or Aphrodite. Yes. And so in the same way, the son of Ungit, that is either Cupid or Eros, depending on if you're going with the Roman or the Greek. Yes. We learn too in this chapter that they at least believe that this Ungit demands sacrifice. And honestly, there's a lot of fear towards Ungit. So whenever things go wrong, it talks about how they had to sometimes spill blood of, I think it was doves or some sort of bird. Pigeons, I think. Pigeons, you're correct. There we go. And sometimes they'd even have to cut someone's throat and pour the blood over her, referring to the stone. So there's definitely this sacrificial element to unget. But the whole time I'm reading that, I was thinking to myself, particularly the first time, is this what unget really wants or is this their perception of what she, can we call it a she? Yeah, she wants. Yeah. Sure. I'm assuming they only know the answer to that through the priest or the prophet, as he sometimes yes. called. Yes. And you also mentioned, I like how you said, uh, we, we learned pretty quickly about this god of the gray mountain, who is the son of Ungit. And the role that he will play throughout this is quite significant, particularly with Psyche. And so it'd be interesting. So we want to pay attention to the god of the gray mountain throughout this book. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we are also, before we're introduced to Psyche, we hear about the nurse, Bata, 
who threatens the, the princesses with a stepmother. But before they end up getting a stepmother, somebody else arrives. Yes, the fox. And this is where I like how you brought up what the knowledge that they get about Unget from the priest of Unget. And that's where they get a lot of this more sacrificial type understanding of the world. Well, the fox is pretty much the counter to that we see here very quickly. So the fox is supposed to be this wise, I should say supposed to be, is this wise Greek slave that was purchased by the king to essentially ultimately teach this future prince that he expects to have about wisdom. But he says in the short term, you know what, practice on my two daughters, which I don't know actually if we've introduced Redival yet, so we probably should mention her. Yeah, Redival is, is, she's three years younger than Orwell. Yes, her sister. And he wants the fox to train, to teach on them, to train on them, to practice. And this is interesting because there's a quote here that I think fits. You already mentioned when she gets her head sheared at the death of her mother. There's another scene here that's important for our understanding of Orwell. And he says, when he's telling the fox to teach them, he goes, especially the elder one, see if you can make her wise. It's about all she'll ever be good for. That was particularly wounding is the word I want to use here because we're going to learn so much in this book about the role that wounds can play. And she hears for the first time, she's good for nothing unless she can maybe learn something. So she's not clearly not very attractive as we're starting to see here. And we'll learn a little bit more later in this chapter or actually chapter two. But the dynamic between Orwell and the fox, that's, that's just beautiful because she sees that he's a man of integrity. He's inquisitive. He's wise. He's always quoting these proverbs. Uh, and uh, one thing that's kind of funny is he's, he's rather ashamed of his love of poetry. And so what I think Lewis is doing here is he's trying to set up the fox as the supreme rationalist. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of Lewis's own tutor, William T. Kirkpatrick, who schooled him in logic. And even in the poetry that he, that he shares, there's poetry that he wants her to like. Uh, I think the one he uses is virtue sought by man with travail and toil, which sounds like the aspiration to virtue. But the ones that he really loves are actually the ones that move him, I think, in the heart. Take me to the apple-laden land. So even while Lewis is trying to set up this rational figure in the fox, we see that there's something else going on inside him. You also get a very stoic sense about him. And you start to wonder if he's representing somewhat of a Stoic philosophy, which makes me think of mere Christianity, because we're going to see in this book, I'm trying to make sure I don't get too ahead of myself, but we will, we will see the different worldviews you can take, approaches to the world to f- satisfying this longing. Let's just leave it at that for now. And remember how there's two ones that Lewis gives in mere Christianity. One is to essentially keep asking for more of the world. And another one is the stoic philosophy. This is in the chapter on hope. When Lewis says there's three different ways of responding to when the world lets you down, you either consume more, you become stoic or you take, or you reach the Christian conclusion that we were clearly made for another world. It's almost as if um, I would say the Fox represents the stoic because there was a line where she says that she never heard him complain or boast. He was just very almost even keeled. And he always would say, everything is as good or bad as our opinion makes it. Or he would say, as things happen according to nature. That came up on multiple occasions. So he just, he takes things as they are, rather than attaching too much to them, which is a very stoic, minimalist type philosophy. And he's rather contrasted with the king. 
Because the thing that you get with the king is he's clearly ostentatious. He wants he wants greatness. Even the different parts of the palace, the ones that are close to the front where the king is, they are they're decorated more elaborately. Uh, his servants are dressed in finery. And there's even the incident where he comes and announces his engagement to the fox and his daughters. Would you say it's fair to say the king represents the other philosophy? Yes, very much so, actually. He wants more of, of everything. And he's not nice to his daughters, and he's also not nice to the fox, who we later find out is clearly much smarter than the king. He says uh, to thank the gods, for it can't often have fallen to the lot of a mere Greekling to rule the grandson of so great a king as my father-in-law that is to be. Not that you know or care more about it than an ass. You're all peddlers and hucksters down in the Greeklands, eh? <laughs> nice reading there, David. I like it's that. Like, Thanks, man. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting how we see throughout this book the foolishness of the king in the irony, actually, of so many of his different actions. And even in his wedding, we come back to that theme that I pointed out earlier of things not being quite as they seem. The king thinks he's made a great match, but he clearly hasn't. And that's later confirmed. Yeah, because he, he's marrying the daughter of allegedly one of the biggest kings. So the third daughter. And he thinks this is going to be great because the king is kind of flailing right now uh, in his kingdom. And we'll learn that gets worse and worse throughout the book. And I just love how Orwell makes a little, call it in parentheses, comment where she's, she goes, And I now know why the Kafad, the king of Kafad, wanted an alliance with so poor a kingdom as we are. And I've wondered how my father did not see that his father-in-law must already be a sinking man. The marriage itself was proof of that. So we, we do see his foolishness and actually a bit of her wisdom as she's writing it. She, maybe she wasn't at that point wise, but now she's recognizing, how could you not see a, get a guy of that stature if he was really one of the wealthiest kings and on the uprising would never marry off his third daughter to a, a small kingdom like yourself. And so she starts to, she has that intuition, honestly. And then all of the preparations begin for the wedding. Uh, Oral talks about the palace being renovated again, the slaughtering of animals, and the purchase of a new bed, uh, <laughs> which the king spends an inordinate amount of money on because it's got a special wood. And we're told that uh, every, four out of every five children begotten in such a bed would be male. Another example of his foolishness. His foolishness and superstition, because we're going to see more of that in chapter two. Uh, and naturally, the fox says, all folly, child. These things come about by natural causes. The word natural causes, again, constantly comes up with the fox. And even the king's request of the fox, request, command of the fox to teach Orwell, Redival, and 12 other girls a Greek hymn, a wedding hymn for his wedding. Because once again, he wants prestige. This is something that no other king could provide. Actually, this was a very important part, too, because as he's having the fox prepare them, which was, the fox points out, is very tough to do because they don't know Greek. And so the king is like, ah, don't worry about that. They don't need to know what they're saying. Just make sure you can teach them how to sing it. And at one point, the priest of Ungus comes in and asks, are they going to be veiled or unveiled? And the king goes, well, do you, want, do you think I want my queen frightened out of her senses, i.e. veiled? And this is one of the saddest lines in this chapter. Because Orwell says, I think that was the first time I clearly understood that I am ugly. And the tense of that, I think, is important. It's not, it was the first time I realized that I was ugly. That's how I would have said it. 
but she says, I am ugly. There is something where this is a central part of her identity now. I am ugly. And this is going to play a huge role in a story. That's it. That, that is the primary wound that Orwell carries with her for the rest of her journey is this idea that she believes she is ugly. And we know in our own Christian journey, the opposite is true. We are God's beloved. We are his children. And so she's going to have to go on this journey of how that affects her. And can she get to that point as we need to do? I mean, all of us have these wounds in our own lives. I can think back to middle school, high school, different things that made me think I was lesser, not cool, or I wasn't loved unless I did X, Y, Z. And now she's seeing it. We saw it first when she was told that if she learned something from the fox, then she might be worth something. Here she sees how ugly she is. She's constantly being taught a worldview of she is just not worthy unless X and less Y and less Z. And so this is, this is a very profound moment for her. I do really like the line where the fox says that I was a fox, but I'm now a badger. <laughs> the last of his red hair has been turned gray by trying to teach these barbarians a Greek. <laughs> that was great. I had to look up what a badger looks like. I mean, I've, I've, I could figure it was like a gray looking fox type thing, but I was like, All right, I got to see this. <laughs> We also see here, though, this is another example that you brought out of how things aren't as they seem to appear. Because at this point, you're, she's learning the song, there's this wedding coming on, there's this new queen, and she has this deep fear and timidness towards this new queen. She's taught that, she's been taught stepmothers are always the worst. And so here's a great example of, we talked about this with Emily Laporte, so I won't be giving anything away, but the analytical versus experiential. Sometimes our analytical framework, when it's wrong, can misguide us. We can have these assumptions we bring to the world, and the experiential side chisels away at that to get us closer to what reality is and call it refines our analytical to be proper. So she's coming in with a framework. Stepmothers are terrible. And she finds out the queen was the sweetest, timid, and most innocent person. And even the queen, she comes in equally thickly veiled. Yes. And then in a symbolic act, they then start helping undress her. Ooh. So all of these layers of finery then start getting taken away and they finally get to see who she really is, which is uh, a small shivering little girl effectively. Yeah, that saddened me quite a bit actually. You just feel her being taken advantage of and used and kind of just disposed by the king almost. At least that was my thought. Well, can you imagine being sent to a foreign land telling you that you're going to marry somebody you've never met? Yeah, you're right. And he is not the most pleasant human being. No. There's a a very nice line where Orwell says, it's not nice, but I I found it really striking, where Orwell said that she was able to see through her stepmother's eyes what her father would have looked like to her. Whoa, I forgot about that. And that his, his face was, was, was not a face or uh, a demeanor that would have instilled confidence or love. Can you imagine Lewis could have written a whole backstory on the king, how he turned out to be the way he is? I actually think that would make some fun fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. So anything else you'd like to say about the wedding? That's pretty much wrapping up chapter one. Now let's get on to chapter two. Yeah, so chapter two starts out with the queen being pregnant, more or less. And we get the birth of Psyche. Well, naturally the king is convinced that it's a boy. Of course. And actually in this, when I, f- I found that when I was picturing King Trom, I was actually picturing Henry VIII. Good, yes. I actually was too from the movie The Other... 
what's it called? The other Boleyn daughter? Isn't that on King Henry VIII? Uh, yes, the other Boleyn girl. Yeah. I was also picturing uh, A Man of, for, of All Seasons, the movie, mm-hmm. the King, because that's King Henry VIII as well, right? It See, is. See, I always pretty much know these things just without quite conviction <laughs> to take a strong stance. Yeah, I was picturing him as well the whole time throughout this. And it's around this time that we find out that the Queen's father, so King Trom's father-in-law, that his fortunes are in decline. Uh, the Queen is quite homesick. The weather's too cold up north. So it, it's really the, the, the pregnancy and the promise of a prince that is uh, keeping things sweet at the moment. Yeah, it's not going very well for the king. Let's just say that. And then we come to the night of the birth and everyone stays up. And here we see this idea of superstition coming up again. Uh, We're told that nobody sleeps when there's going to be a royal birth for fear that the child won't wake into the world. There'll be no closed doors for the same sort of reason. And that the priest walks around the fire nine times every hour throwing stuff in. And then is it a boy or a girl? It's a girl. (laughs) And as you can imagine, a fit of rage comes over the king. Well, it's described as a pale rage, which is even scarier. Yes. It's it's you you picture him just losing complete control. And he calls for wine, and the servant slips on the blood that's on the floor from the recent sacrifice. uh, And the king just kills him. Which there's a lot of irony in that. Because we learn in this chapter, pretty much a few pages after this, that the the castle is sprawling with bastard children of his. And it also describes that the women, in the most cases, he would give away. So most of these boys were most likely his children, or at least we, we get the sense that a lot of them are. And yet, so he actually has quote-unquote princes to some degree. He's got male offsprings. So he probably killed one of his male offsprings, which is what he's been waiting for. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of dark. Yeah, Lewis, don't tell me he's always chipper and happy. No. And the king is so angry, he threatens Ungit's priest. And even the god herself is going to grind her into dust. And the priest isn't scared at all and says Ungit hears. But that doesn't really satisfy the king. He throws Oral around. He threatens the fox. And he shouts at everyone there. The line, faces, 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 what are you all gaping at? Which is an odd way of saying it, but given the title of this book, Till We Have Faces, I can't help but feel that's kind of on the nose. I don't have a good explanation. I mean, I know you read that, and it's as Andrew Lazo said in the episode, you realize something, you just read something that is very important, because yes, faces, faces, yeah. faces, and that's the title, Till We Have Faces. But what did you make of that statement? What do you, when you read that and try to connect to the title... What's your thought as a first-time reader? In the title of the book, I understood Till We Have Faces as meaning something to the effect of Till We Are Really Ourselves, Till till Our Authentic Selves Come Through. Uh, But in this situation, he is quite literally having everybody stare at him. And maybe he's just reducing these people to a gaping crowd rather than actual people. Yeah, maybe reducing them to the... I've mentioned this before, but the false self, true self, it's almost as if you have this false face, this mask, this false self that you've put on because of your wounds. And then till we have Mm -hmm. faces is almost that, that, uh, 
undragoning, as we see in the Narnia book, where Eustace is being undragoned so you can get to your true self. And that's your real face. And as you used, almost like self-actualization, becoming who you were meant to be. And so he sees all of these faces, 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 almost these false faces that they've had to put on because of him in many cases. I mean, this guy's wounding everyone, putting fear into them. And we actually have a very concrete example of that, because when he throws Orwell around, she says that even a child will sometimes know when it's best not to cry. So her father has hurt her, but she knows that she can't let him see that. Otherwise, it'll be even worse. She has this mask on. Yeah, I like that. Anyway, Orwell then tries to convince the fox to leave because her father has threatened to send him to the mines. And she says that he's done this kind of thing before. And she even offers to go with him. But the fox says he needs to flee even further. And sets about asking her to go and collect the root of a plant that he'll use to commit suicide. Yeah, which is... I just remember being saddened when I read that. But I guess if you're taking a more stoic approach, there's not... I'm taking my Christian background of suicide. And I was like, oh, man. But I guess if he takes that more natural approach, and he says later in this chapter, it's no big deal. We just return to our elements. And that's how he... He is a big naturalist, essentially. So it reveals a lot about him. Yeah. And from what I remember, I I think suicide was generally, it was generally viewed better in the ancient world from what I recall, or it it was seen as much more of an honorable thing to do. Yeah. But fortunately, none of that happens. Some visitors from another kingdom turn up and the fox is just put back to work in the palace because the king realizes that he's far too valuable to send off to the mines because the king says something really horrible to Orwell again. He says, uh, here, Fox, I've worked for you. And then Orwell says that she sees her and says, and you, curd face, be off to the women's quarters and don't come here to sour the morning drink for the men. This is her dad. So mean. Uh, he's rough. And this is where we see this next scene. What I believe, there's, there's a theme throughout this book that I've been wrestling with. And I ask Emily Laporte this, which is the, the, what we see throughout with Orwell, the way she handles the wounds, was this, was she naturally disposed to the way she was going to become, or was it that nature versus nurture? Did she, was she going to respond to these things naturally because of how she was born? And there's something very telling in this because we see a second shearing because a new queen, the new stepmother died in birth. So her hair had to be sheared again, just like we saw with her mother. And there was a line that stuck out to me where she said, I sat for the sharing, the shearing, and thought that if the fox must die in the mines, it was very fitting that I should offer my hair. Which I know seems not even close in comparison. <laughs> but it was a gesture of solidarity. It was almost a kind, a self-sacrificial kindness, even if it seemed pretty minor. There was a side of her that wanted to show a true kind of love. And... This to me suggests, pay attention to this as we go throughout these other chapters. I won't say too much more here, but it suggests to me that her love in the beginning wasn't super distorted yet, even given her woundedness. And then we'll see how she responds later in the book and just see if there's events that that kind of push her a certain way. I mean, the very fact that she was willing to leave the palace with the fox, I think that backs up that idea. Yes. And I wish I would have thought of this when I was having the conversation with Emily, because uh, this was, I think this is... This is evidence to, the, to lead to the conclusion that she was more genuine in the beginning and her love became more distorted throughout time, as we will see. 
But she now then goes and meets her new half-sister, who is named Istra, uh, which the fox asks her, what would be her name in Greek? <laughs> uh, and that's Psyche. And she says that, in one hour, I passed out of the worst anguish I had yet suffered into the beginning of all my joys. She falls deeply in love with Psyche, and she takes charge of her. Uh, she assigns her a new wet nurse, and takes the wet nurse and Psyche into her, her own apartments in the palace. And she says, it was now always we three, the fox, Psyche, and I, alone together. And we hear a lot now about Psyche's beauty. Yeah, this, this is an important part, I believe. And this is something that I want you and I to expand on in the video side of things. So we can say some stuff here. But... That quote, and so in one hour I passed out of the worst anguish I had yet suffered into the beginning of all my joys. Remember how we've talked about before in this podcast, and we will eventually when we do the four loves, how we can idolize earthly loves. They can become distorted. And here you see a very strong example of how you have this character Orwall, who is very broken down at this point. David has pointed out on multiple occasions, what a brutal father, who essentially made her feel ugly, worthless. She'll only be loved if she can somehow become intelligent or competent in some way, shape, or form. Which means that she's stupid in the meantime. Yes, that's exactly right. So she's just feeling awful. And then here comes this being, this person. And it doesn't have to be, when we're in these states, it doesn't have to be a being that can end up filling this void. But something that can come fill the void. In this case, it's psyche. And we can assume that this thing is going to bring us all of our happiness and our joys. And so this is, this is a very important part of how it begins, where she starts to idolize something, in this case, Psyche. And I think we can all relate to this. Have you ever had it in your life where when you're just feeling crappy in life, you're feeling kind of down, you're feeling unloved, you're feeling just not very beautiful, not very worthy, and there's something that provides you comfort, and it's easy to make that an idol very quickly. Yeah, her love for Psyche becomes very possessive and obsessive. Uh, she says, I wanted to be a wife so that I could have been her real mother. I wanted to be a boy so that, that she could have fallen in love with me. I wanted to be her full sister instead of my half-sister. I wanted her to be a slave so that I could set her free and make her rich. Yes. And why do you think it is that she was so taken to her? Well, in large part because of, the, of her beauty. Yes. And also, Psyche hasn't been mean to her yet. Uh, but I did want to mention something about her beauty because the way Jack describes it is really interesting. He talks about it being just very natural. It's, it's almost like Psyche fulfills the beauty that everyone and everything should have, but hasn't. I thought that was an especially interesting way of describing it. Uh, almost like Psyche is an unfallen Eve. And the consequence of Psyche's beauty is that she makes everything beautiful around her. It's kind of like when you fall in love and suddenly pop songs have meaning to you. Uh, but Oriole writes, When she trod on mud, the mud was beautiful. When she ran in the rain, the rain was silver. When she picked up a toad, she had the strangest, and I thought, unchanceous love for all manner of brutes. The toad became beautiful. And this is particularly telling since this is coming from the mouth of someone who we are told is ugly. This, I, I listened to a podcast recently. I believe it was on the liturgy guys, actually, talking about beauty. They had a three-part series on beauty. 
And I think Lewis is making the exact same point they did. The biggest takeaway I got from it is something is beautiful when it's in pretty much communion or in the right orientation of how it was intended to be, like what it's supposed to be doing. The closer it is aligned with what it was meant, its intent is, the more beautiful it is. And so in this case, we're all creatures of God. We're children of God. And the closer we are aligned with how he intended us to be, that true self, the more we radiate that beauty. And you see that here. I almost get the sense as I'm reading this, I picture a person that, like you said, an unfallen Eve, like a person that is in communion with God, almost a saint strikes you like this way, that they radiate God's glory because they're acting in the way that he intended them to be. And further, they talked about how it's beautiful in the way that it reflects truth back to us. And I think you also see that with Psyche. And then we start hearing about the personality of Psyche. Uh, We time jump a little bit and she starts growing up. And we're told that she says things like, when I'm big, I will be a great, great queen married to the greatest king of all. And he will build me a castle of gold and amber up there on the very top. And here she's referring to the mountain. And... I think what Lewis is doing here is he's starting to set up a counterpoint to the fox. If the fox is rationality, if he's all about reason, then psyche is all about longing and imagination. And that line in particular reminded me of the section in Surprised by Joy, where Lewis speaks about his nursery room and that there were windows that looked out onto what they called the green hills. And He said they weren't very far off, but to us children, they were quite unattainable. And he says, they taught me longing. And he uses that that German word, Sehnsucht. And it seems that 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 imaginative heart longing is what is being personified here in Psyche. This is going to be a very important theme throughout this book, longing. This is a word we have to remember. We know this was a huge part of C.S. Lewis's journey. We know from one of your favorite arguments of his, the argument for desire or from desire is very much about that longing. And when we orient that longing in the right direction, when we realize what it's really longing for, that's when we can become our true selves. And as Lewis learns in his own personal journey, and many of us learn in our own journeys as well, is we seek to find fulfillment. The only thing that will truly satisfy that longing is the divine. And we see that in St. Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, Lord. And so this is going to be a very big theme. And clearly Psyche, very early on, sees that. And that's where I was, when I go back to that question of Orwell, it almost seems like Psyche has a bit of a benefit from the beginning. She just gets it. She has a natural disposition towards the divine and understanding where that longing is pointing her to. But also don't forget that she's been loved from her very youngest age by Orwell. And the fox. Yes. So the role that that plays in her journey, when she's been affirmed and loved in the proper way, how she can then orient that love herself towards the right way. And that affirmation is how chapter two then ends. We're told the fox clapped his hands and sang, prettier than Andromeda, prettier than Helen, prettier than Aphrodite herself. And these words scare Orwell. She thinks that they are... They are dangerous because they might cool down the wrath of the gods. Because we know Aphrodite, she is the goddess of beauty. And to claim that a mere mortal is prettier than a goddess, 
is quite a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, this is the first time we get entered into this idea of, of jealousy. And the fox claims a divine nature does not have envy. And I, it made me think of it. I'm just curious your thoughts. You are better at theology than myself. We see so much this idea of a jealous God in our own Christian journey. We're starting to see that concept teased into this book. But I would say that when we say our God is a jealous God, we don't mean that he's jealous of good things in other people. What we mean is jealousy insofar as, Matt, let's say you're married and you've got a beautiful wife and kids. And then one day somebody comes to the door, knocks on the door and says, uh, hey, would you mind giving these flowers to your wife? I just want to say, I think she's really pretty and I would love to take her out on a date. You are going to be a jealous man because he's wanting to be in relationship with the person with whom you have committed your life to. And particularly in the Old Testament, God sets himself up as the bridegroom. This is obviously repeated with Christ, but he sets himself up as the bridegroom with Israel as the bride. And what he wants from Israel is fidelity for them to be wholly faithful to him and not to go after other gods. So in that way, our God is a jealous God because he wants all of us. He's not put out when somebody rises to greatness, great power, great holiness, because apart from anything else, where does all of that power and holiness come from? But God himself. So what you're setting up is this idea that he almost would be not a loving God if he wasn't jealous. Exactly. Like that's a natural, that's a natural response that he has to have because of his true love for us. He wants all of us. I was thinking of the John Legend song, All of Me Wants All of You. I think it's John Legend. Yes. You know, you know, you know the youth music much better than myself. <laughs> yes, I do. That is John Legend. So we're wrapping up this chapter or this section here. And what do you think? I'm curious. Some of the major themes that are being teed up as we see this. We've now unpacked some of the main characters. Hopefully some of the listeners have an idea of the setting that's going on, the type of dynamics between these lead characters, the roles they're going to play. What do you think are some of the main themes that we've identified thus far? I think the two major ones for me are the question of love, uh, all the different kinds of love and what love does to us, how it transforms us. And the other big idea of veiling masks uh, misconceptions, not seeing things clearly. I, I think I think that that one in particular is going to come in in spades. All of this talk about veils and things being in darkness and deals being made, and it doesn't actually turn out as people expect. Yeah, and I'm thinking of the great statement that you made earlier: this movement between psyches and the fox's thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, reason and imagination. Sorry, yes, that that one. As yes, well. that's exactly right. And then finally, I would put just Psyche's longing, which is somewhat under that umbrella. But that, I think, is another major theme that we are going to see played out in this book. But we'll have to be talking about that more next week because we've now reached the end of our time. And so, listeners, uh, please go and check out pintsforjack.com if you've got any comments or questions there's a form where you can send us a message yes again we're going to keep stressing this this is where we need this blitzkrieg we're starting this season three so please go check that out uh, subscribe to it check out our other offerings uh, you'll also see we have a video series on the website that you can check out which definitely highlights many of the main points from mere christianity and this book draws on those a lot And get some friends together and read this book together. You can meet at a coffee shop, just text someone now or 
tweet out uh, this episode and invite people to read along with you, even if they're not in the same part of the country. Yes. And as usual, definitely go follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Honestly, all of these different forms of medium, even the social media side, we offer something different. David uses Instagram in a certain way, Twitter in a certain way. So definitely go check out those. And then join us next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.